Shameless Media. This episode of The Shameless Book Club is brought to you by Audible, the home of storytelling. Download the Audible app and start listening today. Hello and welcome to The Shameless Book Club. Today, we are bringing you an interview between New York Times best-selling author R.F. Kuang, also known as Rebecca F. Kuang, and Shameless Media's content coordinator Sahani Gunatilika. At the very beginning of this month, we dropped a review episode of Rebecca's latest and arguably buzziest book, Yellow Face, where Mish, Zara and I dived deep into themes and characters. In that chat, as is usually the case with our review episodes, there were a couple of moments I wished we'd had Rebecca herself there for to provide her own thoughts. So this interview between Rebecca and Sahani couldn't have come at a better time. I had the absolute pleasure of audio producing this episode, and it was such an illuminating conversation to edit and listen to. In it, Rebecca talks about the ways the book is reflective of her own experience in the publishing industry, why writing from the perspective of June was actually kind of cathartic, and of course, she updates us on her exciting upcoming projects. I hope you guys enjoy this interview as much as I did. Here is Sahani and Rebecca. Hi, Rebecca. Welcome to the Shameless Book Club. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Of course. So we picked Yellowface to be our July book club pick. And I know Reese's book club also picked it up and I've seen it just about everywhere. Do you ever get used to the hype and the feedback loop that comes with publishing a book or does it not affect you as much? Because I know a lot of your other books have also been wildly successful. You know, what really helps is that right after a tour wrapped up, I absconded to Taipei and immediately started a very grueling four hours a day, four hours of studying, four hours of class a day, four hours of studying a day schedule at this program I'm in and started studying for my qualifying exams. And I'm on a flipped time zone from my normal time zone. So everybody sends me emails and tags me and things while I'm asleep and I wake up and see it all and ignore it all immediately. (laughs) Um, So I feel like I went into hiding, which has been very good to maintain a sense of focus and groundedness that I need to do good work. Mm. So you're currently doing a PhD at Yale, is that correct? Yes, my PhD is in East Asian languages and literatures. My focus areas are modern Sinophone literature and Chinese American literature. So I have to ask, I feel like you might get this a lot, but how do you do it all? Like that's so much. So I get asked this question (laughs) at every single event I do. Now, there are a few questions I can count on audience members asking, but if I had to bet that I would bet all my money on this one, (laughs) and everyone's always very curious, and I feel awful because I never have a good answer. I wish I figured (laughs) it out. I wish I, you know, had some secret for time travel or time management, but it just, it feels impossible. And I wouldn't recommend it to anyone. Like it's it's not a sustainable lifestyle. I'm tired all the time. I'm stressed out all the time. I'm on the verge of quitting everything and becoming a yoga teacher all the time. <laughs> it's very hard and I'm just trying to make things work from day to day. But I really do not have good advice about how to handle two careers because I feel like I'm barely managing one. 
I mean, that's kind of a relief to hear because it feels like an impossible standard. So let's get tucked into Yellowface because I know most of the people listening to this at home want me to ask the questions because I actually ask them, what do you want me to ask? So one of the main characters in the book, Athena, she's a young hotshot author and has incredible success in the industry at a very young age. Given you two also have not too dissimilar of a career trajectory. Did you worry that people would try to compare you to Athena? I thought maybe some superficial, shallow readers might jump to that conclusion, which I think is a very silly way to read this book because Athena and I actually have very little in common career-wise. Again, I could only write this novel after five or so years in the industry because I've felt all sides. And for more of my time in the industry, I felt like June more so than Athena. None of my books were bestsellers until my fourth one, Babel. So the whole time I was writing the Popular Trilogy, I was wrestling with the urge to quit. Every day I had to convince myself that my stories did matter, that they were finding an audience and that I should keep going. But I've been that author at a conference that nobody talks to because they don't think you're important enough, you know? Mm. I've been that author at a bookstore event where not a single person shows up and it's so terribly awkward. And eventually Mm. the bookstore manager hints, oh, maybe it's about time to pack up and, and go home. I'm so sorry. I think people are just busy today. And I've been that person walking into bookstores, hoping I might be able to find my book on shelves and, mm-hmm. and walking away just bitterly disappointed because, of course, the store wouldn't have ordered my title in the first place. I used to tell myself, oh, no, it's just because they've sold out. But obviously, <laughs> I wasn't selling well enough for that to be the case. And then, and then gradually, things started turning around and the popular trilogy had this very strange and fortuitous word of mouth spread that I remain so grateful for and then Babel took off and and suddenly the publishing world that I was living in felt like a completely different universe and mm-hmm. and people spoke to me differently. That's something I resent the most about publishing. You know, people will literally decide how polite they want to be to you, depending on how many books you've sold and, and how much clout they perceive an association with you can give them. I hate that. It's such a unpredictable industry. I think everybody is deserving of kindness and respect but people I mean serial networkers really will look at you and size you up and if they decide that you're not big enough then then you're not worth their time and and Mm -hmm. I've been on both ends of that which is what let me write this book but I certainly didn't have the kind of Cinderella story that Athena did and I'm glad I didn't because I think Overnight success like that can mess with your head and mess with your sense of self and how you relate to others. And that's definitely something that's going on with Athena. She's she's absolutely awful to her closest friends. And it's because she she thinks she's so special. Mm. So then do you find that you relate to June more or do you feel more sympathy for her for that reason? I am equally hard on them and I'm equally sympathetic with both of them. It was really important for me to make June feel real and sympathetic and not just some evil caricature of a Mm. white girl because that kind of novel is not fun to read. It's not fun to read a villain who is just so stereotypically gross and, you know, 
cartoonishly evil because then there's no room for growth. There's no complexity. You're not compelled to follow them from scene to scene. So although June has made some awful decisions and some of the ways that she looks at the world are, are deeply messed up, there's, mm. there's also this core that most writers and, and readers too, I think, can sympathize with, which is just this longing to be recognized and, and mm. to be appreciated, to have her words read. And she's so frustrated about the industry. She's been ignored and belittled for such a long time. And and that resentment doesn't come out of nowhere. You know, publishing is very hard on debut authors. Mm-hmm. And, and it's because editors are overworked and people on your marketing team, people on your publicity team, they're handling so many titles at once. They don't have time to answer every single email. And June interprets it as everybody hates her and wants her to fail. And mm-hmm. the bookseller actually has put out some pieces on this disconnect and, and lack of communication between debut authors and their teams and and it's a problem of everybody struggling in an industry that underpays everyone and overworks everyone but Mm -hmm. many debut authors come out of it feeling like you know their career has been destroyed before their book even hits shelves and and that's a feeling I had sometimes and I wanted to make sure that June's frustration was coming from a very true place even if what she ends up doing with it is not something I would recommend. Yeah, what I really liked about the book is the way it depicted the systemic reasons why those women tore each other down, because sometimes those kinds of themes can be portrayed as quite reductive. Did you have that in mind while you were writing? Well, I'll give you one example of how I'm pitting women against each other in this novel. In some East Asian diaspora communities, and I think it's not just limited to our communities either, but I've heard it called the Highlander syndrome. And it's this idea that there can only be one. So if there's somebody else like you in the room, right, if you're the only Chinese American woman in the room and suddenly there's another one, they suddenly become a threat because you're used to occupying that place of marginalization. You're used to being the only one who's jumped through all those hoops and and you're afraid that there is only room for one of you. So instead of working together and, and being supportive of one another, we often see Asian women tear each other down. Now, I don't think this phenomenon is as common as as people being vocally supportive, but it's something I've noticed and, and a lot of other Asian women in the industry have noticed as well. And you might think, oh, well, the Highlander syndrome is so irrational because of course there's not only room for one of you. It's not like it's a battle to the death and if there's a duplicate, then, then they have to be executed. But publishing really does create situations where we feel like there is a very narrow window and that gap is closing and you either can slide in right under the door just in time or or you're locked out because we've all heard stories of acquisitions meetings where folks at publishers will say well we already have one Asian author we already Mm -hmm. have a black author do we really need another one so the industry has created situations where we do feel like there aren't enough positions for all of us Um, and I will say that 
happy thing is that instead of giving in to Highlander syndrome, like so many of the characters in Yellowface do, the writing community that I know and love has approached this with much more grace and solidarity. I think everyone's line is to really link arms and and use our elbows and, and shove to create room and to expand our platforms to allow more voices and, and to lift each other up. So I'm happy to report real writing communities are not nearly as toxic and awful as the writing communities as represented in Yellowface. Mm, I do really like that Athena was not depicted as the perfect victim in the novel. Like, is that also part of the reason you chose to portray her like that? Oh, yeah. I mean, if she had been a perfect victim, it would have been such a boring story yeah. and a really insufferable one, too. This mm. sanctimonious poor woman of colour dies choking on a <laughs> pancake. I mean, with the, with the very first scene, I wanted to poke fun at her character. I mean, she dies in the most ignoble way, right? She's promptly not allowed to say anything for the rest of the book. But the way she behaves, the way she treats June especially, is so narcissistic, is so self-absorbed, is so cruel. And I wanted to make it clear from accounts from many characters that not only was she a bad friend, she's also really hard to describe as a good representative of her own community because there are all these questions about who she might have stolen stories from or how she's positioning herself as this representative of all Asian voices when really she this really rich, really lucky, really privileged girl with very little experience of the world. I have this scene where she asks June if $30,000 a year is is a good salary or not. And June is like, what are you talking about? So Athena has her own problems as well. And she's just as good of a character to explore from a different angle. You know, who do we give authority to when we're talking about authenticity and representation what do we think is good representation and and what happens when that representation actually is very out of touch with the community they claim to speak for coming up after the break rebecca talks to us about turning her bestseller into a tv series but first a word from today's sponsor Mish here, guys. You know how much we all love getting stuck into a story, and that's why I am so thrilled that today's sponsor is Audible. Audible have such a fantastic range of audiobooks, podcasts, and Audible originals, it's impossible to find something that you won't enjoy. I recently came across The Lost Flowers of Alice Hart by Holly Ringland, which actually won the 2019 General Fiction Book of the Year Award. This audiobook takes you on the journey of a young girl who attempts to break the patterns of the past and live life on her own terms. It's about the secrets we keep and the stories we tell ourselves in order to survive. I love listening to an audiobook before ending my night because stories like this one have the ability to transport my mind to another world. The fact that you can lay back, close your eyes and have the story be narrated in your ears is so convenient and calming. If you're looking for a relaxing way to end the night, then Audible is the app for you. Download the app to browse their audiobooks, podcasts and Audible originals and start listening today. Thank you so much to Audible for making this episode of The Shameless Book Club possible.
When I was reading the book at the beginning, I remember thinking, surely Athena isn't that bad because June is an unreliable narrator. And obviously it's satire, so it might be exaggerated. But then when I started hearing more accounts of Athena not being kind, there was so much confusion, but it felt like a puzzle that I had to solve. Like, is that what you were trying to do? Well, I think people are just complicated. Mm. And the way that I write about June and Athena also mirrors the way I've heard the book community talk about various authors. And it's true that when somebody becomes very successful, very popular, you start hearing accounts of their nasty behavior. And it makes me wonder, are they really that nasty? Or Mm -hmm. is it more complicated than that? Is it possible that people might be resentful of them? Or is it possible that they feel very lost and are cruel to others and are wrestling with their own demons as well? And I think Mm -hmm. all of these things can be true. So while I have created this collection kaleidoscope of accounts about Athena that portray her as really quite wicked. In my mind, she is that bad, yes, but there are reasons to be sympathetic towards her as well. I think she has become very successful at a young age. She's very isolated because she doesn't have anybody around her who can guide her and help her figure out her new position of authority and immense cultural influence. And we see throughout the novel that June has very few friends. She has nobody to talk her out of her bad decisions. She has nobody really to ping her thoughts off of and this isolation makes it easier for her to go into these self-destructive spirals. But but that's true of Athena as well. She's thrust into the spotlight at a very young age and she's too immature and scared to know how to deal with it. And it results in very childish and selfish behavior on her part. And, you know, they're just people. They're neither wholly horrible or wholly perfect victims. Mm -hmm. They're just people trying to survive in an industry that's very good at bringing out the worst in us. Mm. When you were writing from the perspective of June, how did you get yourself in the mindset of someone I can only describe as unhinged? Oh, well, that was very easy. It was 2020. So we were all slowly going mad in the confines of our own home. (laughs) It didn't even feel like a big shift in character when I sat down and started rambling in June's voice. It felt just like a regurgitation of the unhinged discourse I was seeing on social media every day. So you didn't find it at all like mentally taxing, especially the aspects of cultural appropriation? Not taxing, only cathartic. It only ever felt like a purge. It helped me get all my inner demons out so that I can walk away (laughs) peaceful while everybody else has to then deal with this (laughs) knot of anxiety and cringe that, that the story is. Mm. I don't remember the last time I read a book where I didn't like any of the characters, yet I still love the story. And I read that you were inspired a little bit by Gossip Girl when writing this novel because you realised you didn't have to love the characters to love a story. Can you speak on that a bit? Oh, I think I only brought up Gossip Girl because... I liked Gossip Girl a lot in high school. Um, But I think a better example of hating all those characters and being invested in the story is Patricia Highsmith's The Talented Mr. Ripley, which has also been adapted into a very fun film. And if you've never read the book, it's about this really slimy character who, who goes and impersonates people from the upper class because he's jealous of their lifestyle and wants that for himself, which is a very understandable but the the earth 
to commit murder is not as understandable. <laughs> um, and so the main character is awful and the people he's surrounded with are awful. They're all these rich douchebags that are cruel to him when they think he's below them and then suck up to him when they think he's somebody else. And it's a very June Athena type situation. It involves impersonation and jealousy and a certain degree of homoeroticism and the whole time you're just riveted because you want to know whether he's going to get away with it. You don't like him. You don't want him to succeed necessarily, but the sheer balls of what he's done is so thrilling and wicked that you just want to know how everything's going to play out the way you might watch a train crash in slow motion because you want to see the wreckage. So that was the goal I had in mind when writing Yellow Face. You don't have to like anybody, but you have to be curious about what happens to them. Mm. So one thing you touch on in the novel is how it feels like sometimes the book world has like chosen a book before it's even published to be the next big thing. Did you feel something meta about the fact that this book seems to have been dubbed the next big thing? Well, everything that happened with the launch process felt like a repetition of things I had explained in the novel. So that was very strange. And again, the only way to really get away with it, away from it, was to flee the country and <laughs> kind of hide from the internet for the next two months. Mm. One of the listeners sent in a question as well. Her name's Serge. She wanted to know, do you think bestsellers really have to be chosen to succeed or can they naturally occur? I'm not a marketing analyst, so I really don't have a good response to this question. I will say that I have seen and experienced very different marketing campaigns for novels over the years. And I know what a difference a large marketing budget and a large marketing push from the publisher can make. And sometimes they can sink a lot of marketing into a novel and it still doesn't really take off because for whatever reason, readers just don't connect with the book. And sometimes there is that magical combination of a good book that readers seem to love and are buying and a sustained and forceful marketing effort. And I feel very fortunate that that seems to have happened with two of my novels, at least. And sometimes the book is wonderful, but for whatever reason, the publisher decides not to throw a lot of support behind it. And this is much more common. And it's something I worry about a lot because it feels like it's an industry where discoverability is is getting harder and harder with many social media platforms shuddering and the homogenization of book discourse around one or two huge titles means that while book sales overall are very healthy, it's harder and harder for those quiet, smaller, mid-list books that really deserve attention because many of them are wonderful. It's harder for them to gain visibility and gain a strong reader base. And I think we're all scratching our heads wondering what to do about that. So one of my last questions is, is there a sequel that you'll be writing to Yellowface? Or do you think a sequel is even possible? Well, actually, when I was talking to the production team about how we might approach, you know, seasons one, seasons two, et cetera, if we, we wanted to be a multi-season show, there's nothing I can say about that 
officially yet, by the way. Okay. Um, that announcement will drop whenever it is um, picked up. <laughs> but yes, it's, you know, we're not casting at this point, right? It hasn't been greenlit or anything. We're just, okay. we're just working on it. But they asked, would you be open to writing a story for, oh. for a second season? And I thought about it and I decided the only way that would be possible is if it went in the direction of a wholly new industry. So what yeah. would have to happen, right, is Yellowface would have to become a show mm. and I would have to write for the show and experience all the ridiculousness of Hollywood and then I'd be able to write about that but I don't think anybody wants to read another book about how awful the publishing industry mm-hmm. is June would really have to have a significantly different life experience for that to be interesting but I think that might take place on a shooting lot yeah well I was thinking like all of your books are quite dissimilar like Babel to Yellowface to the Poppy trilogy and I was like surely she wouldn't want to do the same genre again that's true too I get really bored of writing in the same voice over (laughs) and over so I think I'm done with June for now and I think everybody else is too can you tell us about the next book you're working on yeah, it's called Catabasis. It's my return to fantasy, which is my first love. And it's my first love story. And it's about two PhD students studying arcane magics who decide to journey to hell to rescue the soul of their advisor who died in a freak magical accident so that he can write them job recommendations. <laughs> oh my God, I'm excited. I'm sure everyone's really excited. Do you know when it would be out or do you not have a... ETA. Yeah. It will come out in either May or August 2025. And it has to be May or August because those are the only times of the year that I can go on tour. May because it's the end of the spring semester and August because it's before the fall semester starts. <laughs> that is just insane, that workload. To finish off, I just wanted to do a quick fire round of questions. The first one is, what are you currently reading? I am reading American Prometheus, which is the Pulitzer Prize winning biography of J. Robert Oppenheimer. Mm, that um, Very timely. Oppenheimer <laughs> is inspired by. It's a great biography. It's a lot of fun. And my second question is, roughly how many books do you read every year? Oh, that's really hard to say. I stopped keeping track because it made me feel bad because (laughs) my time for reading for pleasure basically plummeted um, Mm. the further I got into my PhD program. So I'll have read something like 200 texts by the end of this year, but they'll all be for my qualifying exams and not because (laughs) they were for fun. And my last question, what book would you recommend to a friend going through a hard time? Mm, This is a great question. For me, I think Susanna Clarke's Piranesi is close to a perfect novel and it never fails to make me feel better. There's just something about the tone, this this lightheartedness, the sense of wonder, this determination to find beauty in the world, even when the world is really messed up. I find it really inspiring and, and I just love that book. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Shameless Book Club. Rebecca was actually heading straight into an exam right after this interview. She truly does squeeze it all in. So we are very much appreciative of her time and her insights. As you know, this podcast drops all kinds of content, author interviews just like this one, book reviews and our new series, Stranger Than Fiction. 
To get all of that in your feeds, all you have to do is click follow. Every person who clicks follow helps us reach more people and grow the show. Do not forget as well to follow us on socials. Search for The Shameless Book Club on Instagram and TikTok. Alrighty, I will catch you guys next Friday for our book review episode where we will be talking about The Rachel Incident by Caroline O'Donoghue and I cannot wait. See you guys then. Bye. This podcast was recorded on Wurundjeri land. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land.